There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When the Pilgrim Fathers came to America in search of religious and political freedom, they settled in the northeastern sector of our country, known as New England. A part of New England, after the English county of Hampshire, came to be known as New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a land of history, of contentment and charm. For those of you who are looking for a thrill, here you have it, in the Cannon Mountain Aerial Tramway. It's a fascinating, breathtaking ride. And as your car nears the summit, there is an unforgettable view of the White Mountain National Forest. One of nature's most awe-inspiring works is this giant profile of the old man of the mountains, sculptured out of the granite cliffs at Franconia Notch. In the previous two episodes, we've looked at how what we know about memory and regression hypnosis raised serious doubts about Betty and Barney Hill's story of alien abduction. But these doubts don't apply to the parts of the September 19th trip that Betty and Barney remembered before hypnosis. Dr. Benjamin Simon, who'd conducted the hypnosis sessions with the Hills, said that while he believed the memories from hypnosis were from Betty's dreams, something had actually happened that night. The question is what? I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 7 motion parallax. The Hills planned to spend the night of September 19th in Montreal. They'd driven about two hours that morning from a motel west of Montreal and became lost in the city before deciding to drive eight hours through the night to their home in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. UFO researcher Robert Schaefer. One thing that people don't often note is that they had been driving for a very long time. I think they had been on the road like 12 hours or more. And if you talk about distracted drivers, that concern certainly applies here. Betty at first saw a light that seemed to be following them, and she was convinced that it was a UFO. And her excitedness gradually got Barney to be excited as well. The first stop they made to get a better look at this light was just north of Franconia Notch State Park. From episode one, Kathleen Martin. As she watched this and it grew larger and larger, she became very curious. So south of 
Twin Mountain, she asked Barney to stop by the side of the road. This was at the Mount Cleveland picnic area. And they got out of the car with binoculars and looked up at this thing in the sky. There's this period of time when they are south of Lancaster, New Hampshire, until they get close to Cannon Mountain, when the light is a long way off, but seems to be getting closer and is moving around in the sky. There are two possible explanations for this that I want to talk about. The most common among skeptics is that at this point in the journey, Betty is seeing the planet Jupiter. But why would she think it was moving and getting closer? Robert Schaefer, followed by Skeptoid host Brian Dunning. Well, the road curves and uh, the mountains are there hiding and revealing the moon and Jupiter and uh, anything else that they might be looking at. It's very common in the, in the history of UFO sightings and even at the present time that people say this object was following us. It was moving from one side of the road to the other. But again, you know, many roads, especially in mountainous areas, do not go on a straight line. They curve back and forth. It's very easy to get confused about, you know, what direction you're looking at something. That isn't really in question. That's a very common thing about, you know, UFO sightings. I am persuaded that that is a very good explanation for the white light that they saw in the sky. I have had similar experiences myself. I've done a lot of sailing, and when you see a light in the distance and you're on a boat and the boat's moving, the illusion that it's the light that's moving and not you can be extremely persuasive. I do think that that is a sufficient explanation for the white light that they reported. I've heard that people do get confused by planets at night. But I still have a hard time believing that this misidentification of Jupiter is the beginning of the Hill Encounter. Even fatigued, driving dark, lonely roads at night, I just can't picture it. I attended a meeting of the Granite State Skeptics, a group in New Hampshire that gets together once a month to discuss paranormal phenomena. I brought up that I didn't quite buy the Jupiter explanation. One of the people there, a retired Air Force officer named Steve Lundquist, had a story. So this is really about being an expert witness and people knowing or should know better, and they can still make mistakes. So just talking about myself personally, Air Force pilot, over 3,000 hours in jets, flying all over the world, amateur astronomer, and, you know, in the Air Force, you even get courses on, you know, aviation weather and all those sort of things. So with that sort of a background, you know, you'd think I'd know better. But uh, one time we were in uh, the Middle East and we were flying a long mission and it was, you know, the typical O-Dark 30 and we're flying towards Saudi Arabia and we see an aircraft in front of us. And, you know, it's hard to tell exactly what kind of aircraft it is, you know, if it's by its brightness and it's really far away, it's probably a big one, but if it's closer, it's probably a small one. We didn't think much of it until we noticed that it was climbing, and after a while, it climbed pretty high. And since we couldn't paint it on radar, we figured it was far away, so it must have been a large aircraft and far away. We're looking at the altitude that it's getting to, and we're figuring to ourselves, no U.S. aircraft can reach these altitudes. It just can't. Trigonometry actually came into the whole equation. You know, we put the sextant to see what the angle was, and we're like, wow, this thing is like up there, like 120,000 feet. 
nothing can do that. And of course, as we're flying along, we're like going, geez, AWACS is awfully quiet tonight, too. Yeah, one, one, what's up? Why is that? What's going on? Now, if I'd gone back and reported to people, we saw this airplane, it was doing things no aircraft we know of can do, you know, and then we said it was a UFO, you'd probably believe me. Because, you know, I'm an Air Force pilot, I fly, I know astronomy, I'm an engineer, I have top secret clearance, all that stuff. You'd believe me, right? We thought about it a little bit more, and we came to realize it actually was Venus. But because we'd been looking for traffic, you know, when you're flying, you're always looking for what you might run into up in the sky, we fixated on, it's an aircraft. This bright light in the sky is another airplane, we don't want to hit it. And even though it was starting to do things no other aircraft can do, in our minds it still stayed as an aircraft as opposed to Venus. Classic mistake of Venus as an aircraft. It's like, I should have known better, and I still made that mistake. There's another explanation that I find still more convincing, brought to us by Jim McDonald. I write science fiction novels, I'm a magician, I'm an EMT, and I live here in the north country of Namsha. Jim's explanation relies on some of the same principles as the Jupiter explanation, but comes to a different conclusion about the source of the light. One day, on the 19th of September, to make it exactly the right date, my wife and my daughter and I all drove down Route 3 following Betty and Barney's route with a copy of Interrupted Journey, which my wife was reading aloud, while I took time ticks and mileage measurements and discovered some interesting things. Remember, The Interrupted Journey is the book written by John Fuller that first told the story of the Hill's journey and their sessions with Dr. Benjamin Simon. Just south of Lancaster, when you cross up on the shoulder of Mount Prospect, Corrigan Hill, that's the first spot that Betty and Barney saw their UFO, their flying saucer. And when you cross the crest of Mount Prospect, same exact spot, that's the first place that you can see the warning light on the top of Cannon Mountain. Immediately after seeing the UFO, it began to move rapidly straight up. It was like a shooting star, only it fell up, I think's the quote. Immediately after you cross the shoulder of Mount Prospect, US-3 goes down a 9% grade for the next half mile, pointed directly at Cannon Mountain, and that aircraft warning light apparently moves straight up. Well, that flying saucer, Betty and Barney's, it disappeared on one side of the road, reappeared on the other, and it was sometimes high, sometimes low, just like that aircraft warning light. Their flying saucer got larger, brighter, and closer the farther south they went. And uh, so does the aircraft warning light. It gets larger, brighter, and closer. I said to myself, my golly, I think I'm seeing their UFO right now. Actually, I'd already said that because I'd made the connection. I'd made the connection years before. But now I was testing it out for sure. And we get to the sighting that really clinches everything. Betty and Barney are at the foot of Cannon Mountain. They're looking up the top of Cannon Mountain and they're seeing the lights at the tramway station. There is a aerial tramway, the first one in America, started in 1938, goes up the side of the mountain. At the upper tramway house, there is a snack bar, and there's lights you can see from the road. Betty and Barney reported seeing those lights at the snack bar. 
and they reported seeing the their UFO, their flying saucer, at the same time. As you stand at the foot of Cannon Mountain on the side of Route 3, looking up at the top of the mountain, you see the lights at the top of the tramway, and you see the aircraft warning light. So, Betty and Barney, they're looking at the aircraft warning light, they're pointing at the aircraft warning light, and they're saying, that's it, that's the flying saucer. I mean, case closed right there. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This illusion of the lights on top of Cannon Mountain moving, when in fact it is the car that is moving, is made further convincing by an effect called motion parallax. Mark Henn from the University of New Hampshire. Other things that night include uh, seeing the light, which other people have said that is simply uh, the beacon from a ski resort. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it seemed to follow them is absolutely perfectly in line with a depth cue called motion parallax, where you see things, closer they are, the faster they move, the further away they are, the slower they move. This was at a distance away, so it appeared to kind of follow their car, but it was at not the distance away that the stars were, so it was moving differently from the stars. So it could look really weird if you don't know what you're looking at. Route 3 runs about 280 miles from the Canadian border in New Hampshire south to Boston. The main events of the hill sighting took place over a distance of about a dozen miles from the Mount Cleveland scenic area to somewhere around the Indian Head Resort. This stretch takes you from just north of Franconia Notch through the notch itself with mountains on either side, including Cannon Mountain and the Old Man in the Mountain on the right and Mount Lafayette on the left. After about seven miles in the notch, Route 3 exits into the lower hills, including the area around Indian Head. On a November afternoon, I drove this route that Betty and Barney took. It struck me that so much has changed since 1961. Once you enter Franconia Notch, it's hard to feel like you are really recreating their journey with any sort of precision. The path Route 3 takes follows the same course north of the Notch at the Mount Cleveland picnic area and south of the Notch around Indian Head. But the section that goes through the Notch itself has been merged with the newer Route 93 and takes a slightly different course. 
The old man in the mountain has also changed. It was a naturally formed rock outcropping that when viewed at the right angle, as it was by thousands and thousands of tourists every year, looked like the craggy profile of an old man. It's gone now, collapsing on May 3rd, 2003. But it was there in 1961, and the Hills reportedly used that profile to estimate the size of the UFO. So they entered Franconia Notch, driving south with Cannon Mountain on their right. Most skeptics agree that at this point, even if she had previously been seeing Jupiter, Betty is looking at the lights on the summit of Cannon Mountain. Barney is driving. Once they are in the notch, they stop at some point near the old man in the mountain. They get out of the car to look at the UFO. It is now close enough to be recognizable as a craft of some sort, not just the light. They stopped again at the base of the old man of the mountain. They got out and they looked up at this thing again through binoculars. As they're watching it, it appeared to be lighted on only one side and it appeared to be rotating. It's here that the story becomes more incredible. A planet or a summit light are no longer adequate explanations. My name is Travis Roy. I run Granite State Skeptics. I spent about a year researching the Betty and Barney Hill abduction and going to the archives at UNH to look through all the original documentation. And in my day job, I am a IT guy. Travis realized that the moment at which the Hills UFO became more than a light is the same time that they were near the Cannon Mountain Tramway. The Old Man in the Mountain historic site is right where Cannon Mountain Aerial Tramway is. Then you have Cannon Mountain to the southwest of that. And then it's about six and a half miles to get to Indian Head Resort. So if you're talking three miles up from Indian Head, you can see the top of Cannon Mountain. It's not until you get within like a mile or two of Indian Head that you can't see it. So if they saw something at the Old Man of the Mountain site, and then on the way towards Indian Head, they pulled over and looked through binoculars and saw something. It seems totally plausible to me that they would have saw the Cannon Mountain Tramway. And then they, the next thing they saw driving down the road would have been Indian Head Resort, which makes sense. That's how I would explain it too if it happened to me. And the Hill's description of the UFO seems similar to the appearance of the tram car that was used in the early 1960s. If you look at the picture of the craft, it looks kind of like the old tramway. Not the current one, but the one that existed at the time. It's much more boxy than your typical UFO that you think of as a flying saucer. And it had things protruding from the sides, but I mean, that could be the way the lights are, or it could have been reflections on something, it could have been anything, but the actual craft piece of it where it has the body of the craft and the windows and the figures inside looks very similar to what the Cannon Tramway looked like at the time. The Cannon Mountain Tramway was built in 1938. It was the first aerial passenger tramway in North America. The base station for the tramway 
is just a few hundred yards from the old man in the mountain parking lot. There's now a gift store where the viewing area once was. One skeptical theory is that Betty and Barney expected to see a UFO, saw the tram car, and were confused. On the face of it, it's not such a far-fetched idea. One of the hard things about trying to recreate what happened during that brief time is that it is not clear where they stopped after the Mount Cleveland scenic area. They could have pulled over at any point around the old man in the mountain. If they were north of the tramway, it's entirely possible that the tram car passed in front of their view of the old man. There aren't many visual cues there to determine distance in the darkness, especially when looking through binoculars. The tram car would have seemed bigger compared to the old man because it would have been much closer to where Betty and Barney had stopped. The problem is that there's no evidence that the tram was running at that late hour. It was well after the last scheduled tourist run. The restaurant at the top of Cannon Mountain was closing around that time, so maybe it was being used to bring down staff or something like that, but there's no record of it. From the old man in the mountain, they continued south for a few miles, briefly stopping at times and eventually encountering the craft in a field near Indian Head. This is where Barney saw the figures in the craft looking back at him. He took his binoculars, held them up to his eyes, and looked up at this object. He could see a lighted row of windows that seemed to be around the, the front part of this craft. Gazing back at him were between eight and 11 figures inside the craft. The skeptical explanation begins with Betty and Barney's fatigue and stress. They've been on the road for hours. Betty, in particular, thinks they are being followed by a UFO. Her nervousness is affecting Barney. Because they are not thinking clearly, they misconstrue whatever they see near Indian Head. With this in mind, Travis Roy speculates about what they might have seen. I've done that drive, and you can't see Cannon Mountain from the Indian Head Resort. You can see it from a small drive north. The distance isn't that much, and that goes back to what I said about how it's really hard to tell exactly where you are. The other thing, too, is, is that in their retelling of it, they pulled over at one point at Indian Head, and Barney went across the street and looked at the craft through binoculars. Now, if they were doing that, I mean, Indian Head Resort was there during that time. There would have been other people around. There, I mean, even in the middle of the night, there's still like the hotel staff and stuff. And there would have been lights on and everything else. So I really don't think that that's where they stopped to look at the craft. Because if they saw that, wouldn't you have gone into the hotel for help? Or, like, I'm seeing this crazy thing? I think that it happened north of Indian Head before they got there. And they just say that it's Indian Head because that was the next landmark that they hit. There is a problem with this explanation. Betty actually describes passing the Indian Head Resort before they have the encounter in the field. Because they are traveling from north to south, if you are sure that Betty is right about the sequence of events, 
this doesn't fit Travis's timeline. Jim McDonald has an alternate explanation for this part of the story, which is consistent with Betty's sequence of events. He believes that the encounter in the field happened in Woodstock, about eight miles south of the Indian Head Resort. They continue on south. And here comes the the really horrible part of this. They get down to Woodstock, where you find the Jack-O-Lantern Resort, which back in the early 60s had a large, inflatable, glowing, red-orange, spherical jack-o'-lantern up on the roof of the motel. And this got conflated in their minds with the glowing red-orange moon, with the white aircraft warning light on the top of Cannon Mountain. And it is my belief that this is the point where they leaped out of their cars, were running around a field, and that later, under hypnotic regression, became the abduction site. Later on, months later, when they were trying to find the place where they were abducted, they didn't find it. And they decided it must have been near Indian Head somewhere, because it had to have been south of Franconia Notch. But it's notoriously difficult to find, again, during daylight, some place that you've only seen at night. And memory is weird. Could this be the place? Yes, this was the place. It is the place. And it became fixed. Robert Schaefer doesn't even point to any particular physical object. For him, their exhaustion and excitement are explanation enough. Once they finally reached the state where they were both very excited and frightened uh, when they got to this area called the Indian Head, which is uh, like a profile on a mountain like the old man of the mountain used to be. I'm not sure what they were seeing at certain times there, but yeah, they, neither one of them was any longer in a rational state of mind at that point. Fatigue and fear do a lot of heavy lifting in these explanations. Without these two factors, they aren't very convincing. If you are predisposed to think that the Hills were abducted, you probably don't buy them. But it's important to keep in mind that even if you don't accept any of these explanations, the default is not an alien spaceship. In fact, the burden of proof is with the proponents of the Hill's story. Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What we have is a great story, but little in the way of convincing proof that it happened. This applies to the physical evidence that Betty and Barney had at the end of their trip. Remember how Kathleen Martin described Betty's torn dress and Barney's scuffed shoes? According to the abduction story, these happened when the hills were being brought through the woods to the spacecraft. Is there another explanation? So what else do we have? We've got Betty's dress, which was torn. I have no idea how she tore her dress. There's lots of ways to tear a dress, particularly if you're leaping in and out of a car in fields in New Hampshire in the middle of the night. The dress developed a white powder on it some years later, which exactly resembles mold. And Barney's shoes were scuffed. Easy enough to do with uh, a stick shift car, gas pedal, brake pedal, and clutch. And while leaping in and out of a car in open fields in New Hampshire in the middle of the night. Jim McDonald did not mention the broken binocular strap, but presumably the same explanation would apply. The strap gets snagged on a door, perhaps, as Barney jumps out of the car. 
which leaves the most compelling and most frustrating piece of physical evidence, the shiny spots on the trunk of their car. Remember, Betty took a compass out to the car, and when she placed it on the round, shiny spots, the needle spun. There does not appear to have been any further investigation. This is Betty and Barney on The David Schumberg Show. We discussed the spots with Walter Webb and with Mr. Holman and Mr. Jackson. But we had spent hours discussing this. And then it was just an oversight on their part in leaving. When they left for us, we just forgot to show them to uh, them. No one thought, did no you one put that question to Mr. Webb? Uh, maybe John, who was talking uh, to Yes, I did. And uh, Walter Webb simply throws up his hand and disgust at his own failure as an investigator. Uh, I am convinced in my own mind that nothing was hidden, that it was simply a, a very serious oversight, and he agrees that it was. Ed Edelson of uh, World Journal Tribune. Are those spots still there? And if not, where, what happened to them? The spots gradually wore away over the winter months, and we don't have the car now. Dr. Benjamin Simon, who conducted the hypnosis sessions with the Hills, was confounded by this failure to examine the spots. Night can't be one of the greatest mistakes I have ever seen. Uh, that is, uh, the uh, interviewer was a scientist. And uh, there was the story of these silver spots about the size of a silver dollar on the back of their car. Yes. Which they said at the time uh, uh, were still on the car. And for God knows what reason. He never went out to look at them. Here was an opportunity to see one single objective thing. You know, we've never had a single objective thing. In the end, what might have been the most intriguing piece of evidence to emerge from this whole encounter was left unexamined. It seems incredible that this trunk, which could have been the critical proof of an alien encounter, was ignored and left to the elements. But that's what happened. So what we are left with are questions about time. To begin with, both Betty's and Barney's watches stopped working that night and never worked again. More importantly, none of what we've heard accounts for their arriving home two hours later than they had expected. What about the missing time? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Barney Hill was portrayed by Jason Williams. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut. John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.